This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Over the weekend, um, Bonnie Crombie officially became the Ontario Liberal leader. She's got priorities. If we're looking through the front of the car instead of the rearview mirror, there's two big issues right now. Bringing everybody under the same tent, which she said she hoped she would do. I actually think she's going to have some success with that for the Ontario Liberals, who've had two dreadful uh, election outcomes in 2018 with the uh, soon-to-be-departing Kathleen Wynne. And in 2022, with the never really arriving uh, Ontario Liberal leader, Stephen Del Duca. So they had disastrous results, a bit higher uh, vote percentage in 2022 that was pretty close to the NDP, but they didn't win key ridings. And you saw even last week, it was a small thing, but they had a by-election in Kitchener Centre and they just got trounced. They finished in fourth place. Kelly Stice was a candidate in that riding. She ran in 22, like just a year and a half ago, and got about 15% was third. And then you turn around 15 months later, despite this so-called new energy behind the party, and she gets under 8%. The Green Party won that seat if you uh, missed it on Friday or took a long weekend. So they have two seats now in the legislature, and the Liberals only have nine. But again, we've gotten not bad. This show started in the fall of 21. And we had a federal election coming and people are like, why is there people upset with Justin Trudeau? And we told you on the air, you're basically going to get the same result you got in 2019. The pandemic and so many of the circumstances around it were were beneficial to people in incumbent government positions because they said, hey, we were here. We wrapped our we wrapped a blanket around you, rubbed your feet for a little bit and made sure you were as okay as you could possibly be. Well, we put some restrictions on you. Let's not forget those. But we tried to keep you safe and we tried to give you money so that you didn't drown financially. So the 21 election, as we said, ended up like the 19 election. Then we go to the 22 election and it's the province and everyone's like, ah, everybody has had enough of Doug Ford. And we were like, no, he's even going to increase his majority government. And he did that from 67 to 83. Not seats. Neither of the other parties were connecting Neither of them could distinguish themselves from each other. Big troubles for Stephen Del Duca on the liberal side, Andrea Horvath for the NDP in connecting with voters. And if you didn't like uh, Doug Ford's restrictions or lockdowns, the fear was always there that the liberals and NDP would have locked you down harder, would have put more restrictions on grandma, would have kept masks longer on your kids. I mean, these were the conversations at eye level for me and on our streets and in our communities. And so we were right there as well. Municipal elections, nah. John Tory's going to win in a in a landslide in 22. Told you that. Can't see the other stuff with John Tory coming. So when we have a mayoral by-election, we told you as well, Olivia Chow's the front runner. She's going to be very tough to beat. And there were some surprising things that happened during the course of that campaign. Um, we didn't think John Tory would endorse anybody, and he did. But maybe a little late, with a week to go before the voting, he got into uh, Anna Bailao's camp and endorsed her. And that might have been a little late. Anthony Fury finished top five and got more votes than either Josh Matlow or Brad Bradford, current city councillors. That's one we didn't see coming. But back to the Crombie thing. And we told you Crombie was going to be in for a little bit of a tough ride. And the ranked ballot was a big factor. Why? I never understood why people were declaring the race over instantaneously um, because she came a little bit late to the party. She had a couple stumbles out of the gate. She'd admit that. In terms of saying, I'm going to govern from the right center. Uh, I think we gave away too much. We're spending too much on health care. 
uh, in the Kathleen Wynne years. People didn't like that very much who are diehard red liberals. Here's some of what she told our friend Steve Pakin on TV Ontario's coverage. And by the way, um, I'll shout out another organization. They did a great job covering it on their live stream, um, as good as anybody else did Saturday afternoon. Here's some of that conversation after Bonnie Crombie won on the third ballot, and she mentioned the importance of getting everybody now together as liberals after, at times, a contentious campaign. They ran an incredible campaign. Honestly, this was such an incredible competitive race. They put so much effort into it and they came up with some really great ideas, but we need everyone. We need all liberals to come together, every one of us, every one of my colleagues and their teams to come back together to row in the same direction so that we can come together to fight Doug Ford in 2026. Do you want him running for you in the next election? Of course, I want them all. We're an incredible, we're a formidable team. I would love it if he would make that commitment. Now, that question was Steve Pakin asking about Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, who's the current MP for Beaches East York. Whether he does or not, who's to say? It's been a pretty exhausting run for all these candidates. They've traveled. Ontario is a tough province to get around, and you're doing a lot of trips into northern Ontario. And I admit, sometimes the show's called Toronto Today, and we focus on Toronto, the GTA, the 416, the 905, and you forget what a big, vast province this is. You can't even drive to Thunder Bay is a great example. you got to fly there. But there are votes there and seats to be had. So um, this is a huge mission. I think it's a two-election job, and I always have. So that, that asks the question, how could the Liberals fare in 2026? In a perfect scenario, how much of the support for the Ford government can they bleed away? Now, uh, Steve Pakin asked Nate Erskine-Smith about that potential to pair up with Bonnie Crombie, kind of be a Batman and Robin team, because that seemed to be the sentiment. And I'm not the first person to use that particular phrase about those two going forward. I think they need Bonnie's supporters and Nate's supporters to gel together and make this a big commitment. Nate's got a huge under 40 support uh, uh, group in the Liberal Party now. And here's what Nate Erskine-Smith said. I look at this and I see a race that many people expected was already over by the time it began. People who said, oh, it's a foregone conclusion, there's a front runner and there's only a front runner. And certainly when you look at the Toronto Star coverage, every other day they were saying, oh, the race is over, the race is over. And I would laugh each time because I would know, no, we built an incredibly strong grassroots team absolutely everywhere. We were a lot of new people, not only, only into our party, but to politics for the very first time. And we've got an incredibly strong team behind us. So we'll see indeed where it goes. Crombie's going to meet in Mississauga this morning. Uh, she'll resign as mayor in January, but it won't be today or this week. And uh, and I think there's some energy behind the Liberal Party. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. What I think is a pretty big story with this environmental conference going on in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. We've talked before and we talked a couple days last week about how large the Canadian delegation is. We've got small town mayors from Blue Mountains and Guelph and other places over getting wine and nine for nine, 10 days straight uh, by the United Arab Emirates. And we're also doing a lot in terms of telling the developing world exactly how they should be behaving with regard to the environment. So I came across a video yesterday morning from a Kenyan farmer. We're going to speak to him live in just a minute or two. But here's Jesper Machugo talking about fossil fuels being needed in Africa for development. We need fossil fuels to better our lives. We need fossil fuels for economic development. You guys preaching to us, the Western governments and environmental organizations preaching to us about climate change. Climate change is not a big problem to Africans. 
we have far bigger problems. We have, we have people sleeping hungry. We have people who are very poor. We have people without electricity. We have people who don't have access to clean water. Those are our big problems. We have people cooking with firewood. And you telling us that we should care about the environment, about climate change. But we are going to say no to neocolonialism in the name of climate change. We should be all about human flourishing, Africans developing. And that's my message. And Jesper Machugo joins us now on Toronto Today. I loved your video. Um, it meant a lot to me. I, I know that we've got climate issues here in our continent around the world. I know there's ways we can utilize fewer fossil fuels. I find it really rich and hypocritical, Jesper, for us to tell you, a developing country, that clean water access, cooking with gas and oil, is something that we've, we've done for centuries, but we should prevent you from doing, correct? Correct, correct. Especially the UN. And why why do you make that distinction with the United Nations? That, that makes... Uh, uh- so right now, the United Nations is very busy preaching to Africans on sustainable development goals. So they, they had they had like a very nice framework. So they came to Africa, looked at our biggest problems. And uh, after that, so they set up like solutions for those problems. So they have like 16 plus climate change, so, so 17 problems, and they have solutions for those problems. And the funny thing is every other solution to these problems, be it poverty, be it uh, hunger, clean water, clean cooking, every other solution is centered around climate change. So we're going to do it sustainably. So sustainable development goals. And that's hurting us because, so the UN is saying right now, climate change is being caused by humans burning fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. So that means like if they want to curb climate change, if they want to control climate change or prevent it from happening, they 1.5 1.5 degrees centigrade, they, they're talking about. That means that Africa should not burn its fossil fuels. That's what the UN is doing. And I find it so, uh, uh, I'd say ironical because uh, I think back in two, two, 2008, the UN had an article out, the bene- benefits of world hunger. That's the title of that article, which they, which they deleted eventually. But I don't think the UN has got Africans. Uh, um, they, they they don't have our best interests at heart. I, I, when I see things uh, at charts that that you know show fossil fuel use, they coincide with an improved water source. The more fossil fuels we're able to utilize, because you need pipes and you need irrigation, so much of that is from plastics. So much of that is from oil. If, if the more fossil fuels we use in continents like Africa, the cleaner the water is for more more African people. Correct. Correct. And I find it so ridiculous that we are discussing climate change in Africa where one in five people sleep hungry. One in three are extremely poor. And over 70%, actually I think about 70% uh, are rely on farming for livelihood compared to two, 2% in the US. And these people cannot even afford clean cooking. We are using cow dung to cook. We are using charcoal to cook. We are using, like in Kenya, 70% of our energy is coming from burning biomass. Biomass is basically firewood, charcoal, cow dung, and stuff like that. Crop residue. It's so ridiculous. Explain to people in Toronto why that's dangerous. It's dangerous to cook with firewood inside. It's dangerous to cook with dung, isn't it? It's very dangerous. And it's it's not clean. It's going to affect your eyes. It's going to affect how you breathe. 
it's it's not clean at all. You can't compare that to to cooking using LPG or LNG. What are you hoping that the developed world hears when someone like you speaks out, bravely so, from the developing world and says, we understand that you have your goals. How do we meet in the middle and make this work? So I hope I hope the West can realize that uh, solar and wind and hydro and green hydrogen didn't develop their countries. It didn't develop the economies. What did was fossil fuels. And when they're telling us use solar and wind, show me one country which is using solar, one city or one town which is using solar and wind entirely. And maybe, maybe then mm. you, you can preach to us about solar and wind. Otherwise, we have got plenty of fossil fuels. We have it under our feet. That's what we should, we should yeah. be burning. Yeah. To and there, better our lives, and there's a way to do it more clean, more clean, more uh, with more cl- uh, care and more and more cleanly than we did 50 years ago. But but I agree, we have to let you do it. Let's stay in touch on this issue. I'm so glad you came on with the air with me in Toronto today, Jasper. I appreciate it. Ah, uh, thank you, Greg. Jasper, oh yeah, thank you, <laughs> Jasper Machugo, joining us. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Dr. Eric Cam was on with uh, Roy Green on the weekend, our fine uh, national host on the Roy Green Show, uh, and then messaged me to ask me what was going on, economics professor at Toronto Metropolitan University. Listen, when you come down with a case of Ontario Liberal Party leadership fever, in addition to your other fevers, uh, then I know it's really something. Then I know things are happening, right? You know, when you are like you and me and Sheba and you have like politics in your blood, I find leadership races extremely interesting and I don't care which party it is. I just find the whole energy and the ballot system and the speeches. I don't know. Maybe I'm just a sucker, but I find it all fascinating from start to finish. So, Mm. yeah, I tuned in as soon as I could. And I appreciated the updates, by the way. I can't say I'm shocked the way it went. And I'm very curious to see now if the party rallies around. Bonnie Crombie to take a shot at Doug Ford. Call me a little bit glass half empty. I think they're starting behind the eight ball. But sure. You know what? Stranger things have happened, Greg. Oh, no, no, no. Listen, you, you've you, you got one party with what now? 82. It's 80. The scoreboard says 82. Rather, uh, what, the, what are they down to? Yeah, yeah. They're uh, 82 to nine. So, I mean, <laughs> behind the eight ball, they're behind all the balls. They really are. 79 seats now for the Ford government because they have lost a couple and uh, the NDP have uh, have nine. I send you a story about um, universities in Ontario um, from Kristen Rashawi from the Queens Park Bureau at the Toronto Star headline bottom bottom lining it. Ontario universities are running out of money and time. That's a new report that's been sent to the Ontario government. Here's what's true. Tuition has been frozen since 2019 for Ontario born uh, undergrads. Um, but. There's been an influx of international students, mostly to the community colleges, but also to the universities as well. Do you buy the argument that Ontario universities, though they may want more payment from the provincial government, and maybe it's fair because there hasn't been as much put in, but do you buy that Ontario universities are in trouble? No, I think it's a load of garbage. Uh, And I don't want to bite the hand that feeds me, but as someone who's worked in a university for 23 years, um, they are neither out of time nor out of money. We're a public sector institution. The major problem in universities today, I think are twofold. One is minor. 
One is we do need a tuition increase. And I'm sorry for anybody who pays tuition like me or is going to pay tuition like you, but tuition has been frozen for a long time. And I don't think people have any idea that the tuition people pay today is truly a fraction of what it takes to educate people in a university. Not Average is about eight grand, right? But, you know, bar, ballpark eight grand, give or, give or take 100, 200 bucks for, for an undergrad yearly tuition, correct? Right. And that's a fraction of what it takes not only to educate your child, but to keep a university running in terms of its research output. But number two, it's a public sector institution, not unlike a hospital and not unlike any public sector institution. I think the largest problem in universities today is a bloated administration. And again, I don't want to bite the hand that feeds me. But if you look at the real growth in universities, they're top heavy. Every university has countless vice provosts, vice presidents, and lots of other fancy titles that make extremely large salaries. And I think that, like again, like any hospital, the efficiencies are there if there's the will to find them. But right now, Greg, I don't see anybody truly willing to forensic audit a university and try to find where we can save money. And, I, and you know, that's kind of a theme we've had before. I don't know why people, our mayor in Toronto included, don't want to start by looking for efficiencies that exist and then paring down budgets. I, I think they've yeah. got it upside down when they want to start with the budget. Listen, private industry has to look under the hoods of the cars all the time. They have to look under them all the time. And somebody will come down and say, I need you to save 70 grand in the next six months or for the big companies, even more. And we don't, Eric, we don't see it in healthcare. We don't. And we don't see it in univer- at, at, at the uh, educational level either. And it's not to say people aren't doing good jobs, but at a certain point in time, um, you know, the, the horse started to run away with the cart with all the deans and all the VPs and all the HR people. And we're, we're where we're at. And w- this should be about professors and students and department heads. And that's it. You know, it's funny. 80 percent of salaries of universities, give or take, go to professor salaries. And here's something else that I might not be so popular at work today is that many years ago, universities functioned on a model that professors didn't make salaries that were comparable to their private sector friends. But of course, the benefits and the pensions were much stronger. But fast forward to 2023, and I would argue not only on average are our salaries much higher, but our pensions are ridiculously gold plated. And so you put that together and you start to get an idea of why these institutions are bloated and they're expensive. And I hope one day, as I said, there's a real auditing and a real cost cutting. But if I may, maybe they could wait until I'm retired. Maybe so. Uh, yeah, a few months afterwards. Eric Ham's our guest, uh, TMU uh, economics professor in Toronto today. I want to get into interest rates in this country because we'll get the announcement Wednesday from the Bank of Canada. But there was a lot of uh, lamenting, if you will, last week that the U.S. economy, um, and we actually need the U.S. economy to do well, because when they sneeze, we catch cold. It happens every time. But their GDP increased at 5.2% in the third quarter of 23. It's actually something that were everything else not swirling around uh, Joe Biden and the Democrats, they'd probably be getting more credit for, and they should probably take it. What's going well in the United States that isn't going so well in terms of GDP growth in Canada? I think the answer is actually kind of simple, which is that higher interest rates are having a significantly deeper impact in Canada than in the United States. I think the bottom line is that Canadians have much higher debt loads and those debt loads renew way more quickly in Canada and then the US. So those borrowing costs, they hit harder and they hit faster. But also on a macro level, Americans right now on average are spending more and saving less and Canadians are spending less and saving more. 
And so when you look at that in terms of what we call the circular flow diagram, it means that our monetary policy and our fiscal policy in Canada seem to be unbalanced. And I use the analogy of um, in a canoe, if you're paddling one way on one side of the boat and the other way on the other side of the boat, the boat doesn't go anywhere. And I think Canada's stuck right there right now. But also, if I may, mm. if you pull up Statistics Canada's webpage and you look at what I think are the major macro indicators, quickly, GDP growth rate, growth rate per year, current account, which is the trade balance, and the budget, they're all in the negative numbers. Guess what? In the United mm. States, they're all in the positive yeah. numbers. So to your question about five minutes ago, do I think rates are going to come down? No time soon until these numbers change. But what? not in January or February, even though there's whispers about that potentially. We, we've we seen our last increase, have we not? You've seen your last increase, but I don't see this decrease anytime before possibly the last quarter of 2024. The Canadian, mm. uh, Canadian economy, GDP especially, is heading in the wrong direction. And until they right that ship, I don't see any of this happening right now. So we know the pandemic relief, Greg, was way too far, way too fast. And now we're truly paying for those results. Some of that also is you can handle um, a, a higher interest rate on your mortgage if your home price and, and the balance left on your mortgage is, you know, pennies compared to what you're paying in Canada. Example, Metro Detroit, right? In all the average uh, home price in Metro Detroit, a home sale price is $260,000. Well, if you're going to raise my more, you know, raise my mortgage payment up to five, I can handle that. I can handle it if I have a one point three million dollar home and I owe eight hundred fifty thousand dollars on the balance. I'm in big trouble then because I got years to pay it off. You know what else is difficult when the United States and smaller, more competitive banks are offering 30 and 40 year amortization periods to help offset those interest rate increases? There's no relief like that in Canada. And with 70 percent. 70% of all mortgages in Canada that are going to be renewed in the next two to three years, I'm mm. really afraid of the bottom falling out in the housing market. Yeah, it's a it's a considerable worry. Eric, I love our conversations. Thanks very much for this. Stay healthy, Greg. You get healthy. Uh, Eric Cam, uh, economics professor for Toronto Metropolitan University, joining us. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Bonnie Crombie becomes new leader of the Ontario Liberal Party leadership, but it was how she did it and how the ranked ballot system worked that made it quite a tightrope for her to navigate on Saturday. Sabrina Nanji covers Queen's Park politics, uh, and she does that for the QP Observer, and she joins us now on Toronto Today. It's great to have you on. Morning, Greg. A little more drama than you expected, wasn't it, on Saturday? Yeah, I think, you know, the the way that Bonnie Crombie and her team were were talking, it sounded like they were going to pull this off on the first ballot and we'd all, you know, be out of there in a couple of hours and get our Saturday back at the <laughs> convent from the convention, but that wasn't the case. It turned out to be uh, you know, quite a nail biter and Nate Erskine Smith in particular gave Bonnie Crombie a, a run for her money. She ended up pulling this off on the third ballot uh, with roughly 53% of the vote. Nate Erskine Smith came in at 46%. We know the liberals were using a, a different system for the first time, but it's something familiar to other political parties. That was, you know, one member, one vote, a weighted system, ranked ballots. And so this this really came down to the wire. Uh, and, and I think one thing that stood out to me was also turnout, you know, just just less than a quarter of the over 100,000 eligible members voted. And so I think that, you know, 
for all the confidence Bonnie Crombie has had leading up to this vote, I think she certainly got her work cut out for her, not only, you know, making sure the Liberals are united, but now trying to woo the rest of the province uh, and take on Doug Ford as well. I'm glad you've brought up the 23% turnout because I saw a lot of miscommunication for all the, a lot of people I know who signed up as members, Sabrina, they complained about the spanned emails, the robocalls and whatnot. But what wasn't clear was you could only vote one day for a five-hour stretch on Saturday or Sunday afternoon, and you had to do it in person. Nothing online, no advanced voting. If you happen to be away, you know, coaching your kid's hockey tournament or visiting family out of town, I, I really think there was poor communication about where you could vote and how and, and the times you could vote. Do you agree? Yeah, I have heard that from some members. I know some folks were confused about the process. Um, a lot of them were just unhappy that, you know, there was no online option. Uh, they, they did have a mail-in option too, but I think, you know, this was the party's first time running a leadership convention like this. And so they could have probably done a better job at communicating this. We heard that from Bonnie Crombie as well. She said that, you know, that even though this is the most liberals that have ever voted in a leadership convention, a lot of them didn't vote because of the the confusion surrounding the process. It's uh, Sabrina Nanji joining us on Toronto Today. Um, what are the big steps she makes to bring? She mentioned on uh, on TVO's broadcast. I know you were on there. You were great. Steve Pakin did a great job with John Michael McGrath holding it. That's a five and a half hour broadcast and breaks for speeches in between. But uh, Crombie did mention that she's really hopeful um, that Nate Erskine Smith accepts uh, a, a role in sort of her inner circle that he runs for uh, an MPP spot, because I think you'd agree it's a lot of under 40 votes, a lot of support for him, and they'd hate to see that sort of dissipate or even go to the NDP. So she seems very adamant that she's going to bring him in. It's just a matter of if, if he accepts it. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, I, I think obviously Bonnie Crombie really wants to um, get the the Nader Skin Smith camp over to her side. I mean, he really did do the work in in wooing the grassroots over to him. And he was I mean, he's got this reputation of being a maverick and, you know, marching to the beat of his own drum. Uh, federally. And so I, I do think that that was a- attractive to clearly a lot of liberals. And now, you know, Bonnie Crombie and Nader Skinsmith in particular, but but heads quite a bit. We've talked about it before. Mm-hmm. Things were getting quite vicious there. And, and they have, um, you know, been opposed when it comes to certain policies. I mean, we could call Nader Skinsmith someone who's more progressive, maybe left leaning. Bonnie Crombie says she wants to bring the party back to the center. So I think that, you know, they, they might have some hard time finding common ground. But at the end of the day, they're all liberals. I think whether Nader Smith has a formal role in her uh, party remains to be seen. I mean, it's kind Mm. of hard for him to run for MPP. There's already a liberal, Mary Margaret McMahon, who who represents Beaches East York, where he represents federally. Uh, He was the only candidate who was a bit wishy-washy when asked if he would run for MPP, even if he didn't become leader. He's already got a seat federally. His seat is taken, you know, by the liberals at Queens Park. Yeah. at Queens Park. And so uh, he said he wants to talk it over with his family right now. He's spending mm. time with his kids. Uh, I know his son was asking for a puppy if he didn't win this. Uh, right. Uh, I think his his kid might be might be in luck at, at this point. I know you did a story about uh, a week before voting uh, happened about an email um, that was uh, towards uh, Muslim voters. And, and it got me talking. So that that was part of the, the point of the story. I know uh, was to generate important conversation about it. What were some I saw people say no big deal to me. I saw people say it was a big deal. Can you lay that out as to what some of the reaction to that was? Yeah, this you're right. This, you know, had divided a lot of liberals. Um, and, you know, I guess as reporters, we just sort of lay the facts out there and 
and see uh, how it lands. And I think there were some people on both sides of the fence here. I had heard from some folks in the the Muslim community who are are liberals as well, who were unhappy that they received this, uh, you know, campaign promotion email from Nate Erskine Smith laying out his stance on uh, the Israel-Hamas conflict, which we know has, you know, divided our our country and, and beyond. And so uh, some some people saw this as, you know, targeting or pandering, um, you know, kind of a cheap way to to get votes. Um, Nathan Nathan's and Smith supporters, including, you know, folks in the Muslim community saw saw this as just par for the course that, you know, this is a way that we do outreach to talk about the issues that matter uh, to certain communities. Um, some some folks didn't really see it that way. But again, you know, I guess it, at the end of the day, all's fair in, in politics. And, it's tough and, to know, right? Because if you go to a black church and, and you want to talk to the, like, you, you want to sort of go into the grassroots of your community if you're running. If you go to a teacher's convention, you know, or are you targeting a, an OSSTF convention and talk about your policy? It's a really fine line. I'd put it that way. Because some people are going to be like, wait a minute, he's just here to get our vote. And no, maybe he or she is there. We saw Bonnie Crombie very publicized at a mosque getting shouted at by uh, getting shouted at by people a couple weeks ago. It's a really it's a balancing act. Put it that way. For sure. Yeah, you're yeah. absolutely right. And I think that the the fact that he was it, it, that email ended with, you know, vote for me here, support me here. I think that was the thing that maybe rubbed people the wrong way. There's nothing wrong with doing outreach to communities, I think, and speaking, you know, the language of that yeah. community. You're right. You know, you go talk to teachers, you're going to talk about education policy. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, it, it maybe to some folks, it seemed like uh, a bit of a, a cheap way to to huh. get votes and support. Um, but a lot of people, you know, really thought that it was a good yeah. thing that Nate was speaking up about this compared to some of the other candidates. Interesting stuff. Got a blast. Uh, great coverage over the weekend and the whole run. QPobserver.com uh, is where you can find Sabrina Nanji. Thanks so much for this. Thanks for having me.